You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,866th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 18th of February 2022. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Sue Harrington-Spear. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. Now, at the time of recording this, we've already weathered Storm Dudley, but I have a piece of news here which was from before the first of the storms, uh, which I'm going to share with you now. Uh, Dozens of trees were felled on Wednesday evening as Storm Dudley swept across the region, causing significant disruption. High winds of 60 miles an hour were battering communities and the treacherous weather was set to continue for several days. Suffolk Police received over 30 reports of blocked roads with Darsham, Saxmundham, Hadley and Brandon among the areas affected. A spokesman said, We have reports of lots of fallen trees across all areas caused by the bad weather we are experiencing. Both lanes of the A12 in Darsham were blocked due to a fallen tree. Earlier in the day, Suffolk Police issued a warning to drivers to be extra careful due to the hazardous conditions. In Brandon, a fallen tree caused a power cut in the town. While yellow wind warnings are in place, the Met Office said rail services could be affected and trees could fall. Meanwhile, winds could possibly have been strong on Friday with the weather warning upgraded from amber to yellow for Storm Eunice. The warning was in place between 3am and 9pm on that day. Zoe Johnson, a meteorologist at East Anglian Forecaster WeatherQuest, said There is some quite rapidly developing pressure up north, which means the winds will be quite strong by the time they get down here. With Storm Dudley we could expect winds of 50 to 60 miles an hour, but on Friday they could have been between 60 and 70 miles an hour, perhaps even up to 80 miles per hour. I imagine there would be some quite damaging winds. It's going to be exceptionally windy on Friday. District councils across Suffolk have said they are monitoring the situation but are yet to announce any changes to services. Suffolk County Council previously revealed a multi-agency meeting between the authority and key partners, including UK Power Networks and Suffolk Highways, which took place on Tuesday ahead of the strong winds. Pakefield Coast Watch is among the organisations preparing. A spokesman said they were expecting a hammering along the coast. He said, we have had worst in the past, but it is not going to be good. Hopefully people will stay away from the beaches. By the time you receive the recording, of course, Storm Eunice will probably have passed us, so we do hope that you have stayed safe under these extreme weather conditions. And now, back to Sue. Indeed, so now we have some headlines. Torch Relay and Festival to mark Queen's Jubilee. Competition for staff leads to wage rises in many firms. 
and how hospital charity adapted to support its NHS heroes. Hancock criticised in Covid appointments court ruling. Details have been revealed of how Suffolk will celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which will include a torch relay through the west of the county. The Festival of Suffolk from May to October promises a series of events and activities for the monarch's historical landmark. The torch relay will journey through West Suffolk as part of a 580-mile journey around the county, accompanied by Golden Rickshaw. Residents will be able to nominate a local hero to carry the torch, with details, including the route, to be announced at a later date. The relay will end at the Suffolk Show, where there will be a festival pageant and an Elizabethan-era display area. Other events will include a family race day at Newmarket Racecourse, the Red Rooster Music Festival at Euston Hall, a beacon lighting across Suffolk, and the ORA Singers at St Edmundsbury Cathedral in Bury St Edmunds. The celebrations will also feature a festival community games, business expos, a festival of the sea and a festival finale at Trinity Park in Ipswich. This week, the official symbol of the festival, produced by Southwold artist Joe Barnes, was revealed and is pictured in another part of the paper. He was chosen from a number of Suffolk artists who applied for the chance to create the symbol. Clare Countess of Euston, Lord Lieutenant of Suffolk, who is the inspiration behind the festival, said, Joe's work is strikingly beautiful and it captures the essence of the culture and character of our wonderful county. A full list of events can be found at www.festivalofsuffolk.org forward slash all slash events. Many firms in the county are raising wages to attract new staff as they face major recruitment challenges. Experts say the jobs market is currently walking a tightrope, with employees being counter-offered on a daily basis. This is pushing salaries up in some sectors, and firms are being told they must look at all aspects of their job offer to attract the best candidates. One Suffolk recruitment firm described competition for staff as hugely demanding. Competition for staff, hugely demanding. Companies are having to raise pay rates for new starters to attract the best people. However, employees are being counter-offered on a daily basis, which is pushing salaries in some sectors up to absurd levels. The result is a situation that is simply unsustainable. The hope is that common sense will start to prevail. Sue Smith of West Suffolk Hospital's My Wish Charity talks to Barbara Eels about getting through the darkest days of the COVID pandemic and how amazing community backing continues to support their work. When the community started going out on Thursdays and clapping for the NHS, it was humbling and the support was amazing. On the first evening everyone clapped, I stood up at my front window and sobbed, thinking about it still makes me well up. The charity does not just work for the hospital, but for the whole West Suffolk Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, which also includes Newmarket Hospital and community services. The start of the pandemic saw panic buying and shortages, which often meant doctors and nurses finishing a long shift to be faced with empty supermarket shelves. The first thing we did was bought loo rolls, bleach, tea, coffee and sanitizer, said Sue. We bagged it all together and gave it to the staff who were desperately in need of these things. Our volunteer office was stacked up with toilet rolls. As hospital beds filled with desperately sick COVID patients, the workload took its toll on staff. 
We set up calm rooms to provide a safe space for them to spend quiet time, said Sue. They were open 24 hours a day. People might say it's just a room, but it's so much more when people feel they can't go on. As the pandemic raged on through 2020 and 2021, the COVID appeal helped in countless ways. It paid to employ a play specialist, a part-time chaplain and a staff psychologist for staff support. Two marquees were set up because social distancing meant staff had nowhere to go for their breaks. Outside furniture was provided. Cordless phones were provided for wards along with smart devices. A fish tank was put in the library. DVD players were supplied for the cardiac rehab team so patients could continue their rehab at home. We also bought a Motormed exercise machine for critical care which cost £4,500 which allows patients to exercise from their bed or chair, Sue added. Also, what seemed so minimal but had such a huge impact was staff ID labels. With PPE, everyone was looking the same. Pens, pencils, art supplies and TV sets for every side room at Newmarket Hospital were also financed. At Christmas 2020, two appeals provided a gift for every patient in West Suffolk Hospital and Newmarket Hospital and residents at Glastonbury Court Care Home. Every member of staff received a reusable cup with a chocolate in it and staff rooms were given a makeover. Alongside all the efforts to ease the COVID trauma, community fundraising for special projects and My Wishes Other Work has continued. Molly and Jack Deal from Cavanham, who had suffered a miscarriage, raised over £7,000, which will pay for memory boxes for parents enduring similar tragedies. They set out to cycle the 300 miles between Berry and its French twin town Compiègne on a static bike, but finished up covering more than twice the distance. The charity gave £60,000 towards a changing place toilet facility for older children and adults. And umbrellas have been provided for staff having to walk outside to different parts of the hospital while building work is being done. You can't do everything, but you just have to do as much as you can. If people say they want their money to go to the cancer unit or emergency department, that's where it goes. If they give to the general fund, anyone in the trust can apply for it. In a year, we pay out anything from £500,000 to £1 million. A lot of the time, the majority of our income is from legacies. People can leave the money for a specific purpose. Half the funding for the diagnostic part of the new cardio unit was from a legacy. Buying other stuff has never stopped. They are things that are enhancing care, the above and beyond. If a patient comes to us and says, you know what would be nice? If it's possible, we'll do it. There are so many ways in which we can enhance the care. Some are major things like the cardio diagnostic unit and some are tiny. Someone once came up to me when I was out with a bucket and said, here's £10. But it's only £10. With that £10 we bought 100 little purple voile bags so that when someone comes to collect a loved one's personal belongings after they've died, we can put them in that rather than an envelope. So never think it's just £10. A Parkinson's nurse said what would be really helpful would be some timers so they could put on the times our patients need to take their medications. They're £20 each and she wanted 45 I went to St Edmundsbury Male Voice Choir concert at the Apex and was invited to do a talk and we got all the money on the night. Now the staff support is still running 
we are opening up events again this year. The Swimmer Marathon, hosted by Berry Rotary Club, takes place in March. Anyone up for a thrill is invited to join in a fundraising skydive in June, and people can raise money without the adrenaline rush by hosting an NHS tea party in July. The popular soapbox challenge, where contestants build their own vehicles and race down Berry's Mount Road, is back in September. It usually raises up to £15,000. The My Wish team now consists of Sue, fundraising manager Sally Daniels, who organises most of the events, um, and most fundraising administrator Mara Ferrari, and finance officer Debbie Kent, with help from communications officer Lucy Proctor and volunteer Tim Tom Ogden. For more information, call 01284 713 466 or email fundraising at wish.nhs.uk or visit www.mywishcharity.co.uk. A ruling that West Suffolk MP and former Health Secretary Matt Hancock did not comply with the public sector equality duty when making appointments during the pandemic is incredibly significant, according to a think tank boss. The Runnymede Trust, an independent race equality think tank, won a high court fight after complaining about government appointments made during the pandemic. Two judges ruled Mr Hancock did not comply with a public sector equality duty when appointing Conservative peer Baroness Dido Harding and Mike Coop, a former colleague of Baroness Harding, to posts in 2020. Mr Hancock's team said claims of apparent bias have been quashed and thrown out by the court. Judges concluded Mr Hancock had not complied with the public sector equality duty in relation to the decisions to appoint Baroness Harding as interim executive chairwoman of the National Institute for Health Protection in August 2020 and Mr Coop as director of testing for NHS Test and Trace in September 2020. The judgment handed down today by the High Court is incredibly significant to the British people, claimed Dr Halima Begum, the Trust's chief executor. It shows the importance of the public sector equality duty and its role in protecting the people of this nation from the closed shop of government appointments, not least in a time of national crisis where people from our minority communities were dying from Covid in hugely disproportionate numbers. Campaign group The Good Law Project took legal action alongside the Trust against Mr Hancock and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It complained about other appointments and argued the government had not adopted an open process when making appointments to posts critical to the pandemic response. But judges dismissed the claim. Ministers disputed the claims against them. A spokesman for Mr Hancock said... Claims of apparent bias and indirect discrimination have been quashed and thrown out by the High Court. What the judgment does make clear is that the claim brought by Good Law Project fails in its entirety, therefore highlighting the fact this group continues to waste the court's time. And now onto some sport, and it's good to see the revitalisation of local amenities. Multiple champion handler pleased to see track reopen. 
So Graham Clark from the Berry Free Press writes, 12-time champion trainer Mark Wallace has given his seal of approval to the return of Greyhound Racing at Milton Hall Stadium, following the first meeting stage under its new name, Suffolk Downs. After an absence of more than four years, the sound of paw prints were once again heard on the sand at the West Row Bay Stadium during a 10-race card in front of the SIS, Sports Information Services, cameras on Tuesday morning. The accolade of becoming the first winner at Suffolk Downs went to Sudoku Sullivan, who saw his name go into the history books when forming the opening leg of a four-timer for trainer Jim Daly. With it being close to our kennel in Underlay, it makes great sense to have runners here. We will supply between 30 to 40 runners when they have three meetings a week, with the dogs that would usually race at Henlow along with some new pups. The team here has done a tremendous job. The track looks good and is nice and safe for the dogs, while the prize money is a lot different to the old Milden Hall due to the involvement of SIS, and that makes a big difference. Hopefully, this is the start of a long and successful association back at Suffolk Downs. This is Mr Wallace who's been saying this. Despite admitting it had been a challenge restoring the venue, track promoter Kevin Boothby was equally pleased with how proceedings unfolded. He said, We have other tracks, so we know what we are doing, but you were always a little apprehensive. However, I'm delighted. We had a winner come out of every box and all the dogs have come back safe and sound. We've made the kennels to a high standard and ensured the track is as safe as possible. It's been a bit of a challenge and we are probably two months behind where we wanted to be, but the main thing was to make sure it was done properly. Looking ahead, Boothby hopes to see respectable-sized crowds back in the stands by reintroducing a few evening meetings in the near future to run alongside the morning cards at the track. He added, we will be racing Monday, Tuesday and Friday mornings at first, but I would like to sort out a gala night and get some people in. We want to run a few night meetings for the local community, as we still want people to come in and enjoy the sport. With lots of tracks having closed, it's a nice it's nice to open a track again and bring life back to the sport. St Edmundsbury Cathedral is set to hold two pilgrimages to mark 1,000 years since the founding of the Abbey of St Edmund. The Abbey was founded in 1020 by King Canute, who had a stone church built for Edmund's body, 13 Benedictine monks from St. Bennet's Abbey and seven from Ely arrived, marking the beginning of the Abbey of St. Edmund. The pilgrimages will continue that historical link by commencing from Ely Cathedral in April and from St. Bennet's Abbey in Holme, Norfolk in May. The celebrations had been delayed for the past two years due to the pandemic but are now set to go ahead. Sarah Friswell, Visitor Experience Manager at the Cathedral, planned the pilgrimages and will undertake the 30-mile journey from Ely. She said, The pilgrimages are very much surrounded by prayer, so we'll begin and end with a time of prayer to root the rhythm of the day. It's about the personal journey of exploration, enjoying the countryside and the conversation with other people, but also it's about finding out about the places you pass through. Sarah added that she was glad that the celebrations could finally go ahead this year. It's great. We got so close to being able to run these pilgrimages and all other related events in 2020, and then we had to put that on hold. Now it feels exciting to be able to get everything on track. The beauty of pilgrimages 
is at their outdoors, and so hopefully those are a good and safe activity for people to get involved in. It is anticipated that 30 people will take part in each pilgrimage, but participants can walk at their own pace. There will also be day pilgrim options for people wishing to join the route for a day. The first pilgrimage from Ely will take place across two days, April the 4th to April the 5th, with an overnight stopover in Mildenhall. The second pilgrimage from St Bennet's will be an 80-mile journey from May the 9th to May the 13th, passing through Norwich, Dunstan and Dis. A service in the Abbey Ruins will take place once pilgrims arrive in Bury St Edmunds. A firm commitment to either of the pilgrimages is needed by February the 28th. For more information or to book a place, visit St Edmunds Cathedral dot org slash abbey hyphen one thousand hyphen events and another story gaining lots of reaction in the press and social media is the proposed closing of Horinger and <coughs> Wesley Middle Schools so this is from the letters page and it's via email from Caroline Flack who writes closures will put children under stress she says, I am writing on behalf of all families and children at Horringer Court Middle School and Wesley Middle School to express our dismay at the proposed closures. The timing could not be worse, and the manner in which it is being done is shocking. The last two years has been unprecedented, and the impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns and school closures has, and continues to have, a massive impact on children's mental health with many children suffering with anxiety, stress and other mental health disorders, such as eating disorders and self-harm, referrals are at an all-time high, and this situation is only going to get worse if the children go through any more change and upheaval. If Unity, <coughs> excuse me, if Unity School Partnership could step into the shoes of any one of the parents for one moment, they would see how significantly the children are suffering. I cannot believe that supposed experienced educators and inspectorate personnel on the Unity Board are wanting our children to go through more stress and disruption, especially the current year five and six children who they propose to move school sites twice in two consecutive years. Children are worried about friendship groups, change of teachers, where the teachers they love will end up and the impact on their learning. There are open days for both middle schools and we would like to urge current year fours to go along to see the smiling students, caring and knowledgeable staff and fantastic facilities both schools so proudly have. If in intake numbers are up this September, we hope the middle schools and all they stand for will remain. Fantastic pupils send support, great teachers, wonderful facilities and happy and dedicated students. We feel that unity should help Mrs Kennedy County Upper Head Teacher, bring County Upper back to the wonderful standard it is capable of, and instead of making rash decisions to actively promote the two good middle schools. There has been no promotion or support for the middle schools from Unity, and poor, before this consultation process started, the middle schools were not even mentioned on their website, social media platforms or job vacancies page. This has now been rectified after it was pointed out to them. This begs us the question of whether Unity ever had any intention of working with and supporting the middle schools. 
Please, local and national MPs, councillors and parents, help us support the middle schools so that parents retain the freedom of choice and students are able to enjoy the three-tier system. I know that my children, as is the same for many others, would have struggled tremendously going to a large secondary school in Year 7. At middle school they are thriving and gaining confidence at a fantastic rate. To support this cause, please sign the petition. Now is not the time to disrupt our schools in Bury St Edmunds at www.change.org. And of course on the subject of letters we can't but be aware these days that a lot of correspondence is actually on social media these days. So welcome to Chatterbox, a weekly sideways look at what's got you talking to the keyboard on social media this week. And in a week that saw some Tory MPs call for Boris Johnson to apologise over his false claim that Labour leader Keir Starmer failed to prosecute Jimmy Savile, we'll take a look at what headlines got readers talking round about here. A new report has claimed the shift from a three- to two-tier education system in Suffolk has not raised standards as predicted. So here's a few from various readers. Tash Salisbury said, Well, what a surprise. This makes me so angry. I know so many excellent teachers who left the profession due to the closures. The only ones who lost out were the children. And Karen Harmon commented, Middle schools were blamed and sneered at for everything under achievement in their pyramids. As a middle head, I sat at meetings where advisors reassured first school heads they were doing brilliantly and all would be well once the middle schools closed. And Pam Felgate responded, never agreed with closing middle schools. They served a very important part of education. Beverly Williams replied, The best thing about middle schools was allowing children to grow up without the intimidation of hormonal teenagers. All my children loved the three-tier system, and I'm so glad that they all got through before the utterly pointless change. While Carl Goldsmith said, If you get rid of middle schools and go straight to upper, then I can see more kids being bullied and a lot more depression in schools. That's why we need to keep middle schools so the kids wouldn't have any of that. And it's to teach them more lessons in school, because going straight to upper, then they'll lose what they should be learning before going to upper schools. Betty Bennett commented, It was such a shame that middle schools closed. They were a buffer between the primary and upper schools and worked very well. Marion Hayward commented, Such a bad decision to close middle schools. A three-tier system was always best for children. Julia Gooch replied, If my memory serves me, Bedfordshire changed their two-tier system to a three-tier system based on Berry and Edmunds as it was so successful. Having gone through a two-tier myself, but had children in a three-tier system, I certainly felt that the three-tier system was better as the children had access to all of those practical lessons two years earlier. It made the step from middle to upper school easier as there were a further two years of maturity before hitting upper school. And the final item is from John Robert Cohn, who said, Perhaps they will think again before closing the doors on the last two middle schools. And now the campaign Toothless in Suffolk continues to make the news locally and nationally, so much so that Barry Peters, the editor of the Berry Free Press, 
has written his piece about it. This dental fiasco needs some urgent oversight, he writes. When almost 50 people have to attend an emergency dentist, it's time someone sat up and took notice. It's a sign of a fractured system and a telltale sign that our great NHS is failing in one vital area. When we break a leg, we turn to the NH experts in A&E to mend it. We suffer a heart attack and we call an ambulance and are whisked off to hospital to hopefully recover. But when we suffer sometimes excruciating pain in our mouths, albeit not life-threatening, we can struggle to find an NHS dentist to ease our pain. This week, one patient tried 40 dentists to see if they were taking NHS patients, but drew a blank each one. Yes, you read that correctly, 40 dentists. If there's a problem with the funding model, that needs urgent attention. If there's a push to make all adult taxpayers move to private health care for dental needs, then be clear on that. But for hard-pressed people who just want an NHS dentist to heal an aching tooth, there has to be a better way and a faster way for them to access vital care. And still on the subject of the toothless campaign, we have an open letter sent to Joe Churchill MP. Name and address is supplied. And the letter reads, I'm sure that you have received many letters in regard to the subject I would like to speak about, but I feel so strongly about this that I feel the need to write to you. I was told by my dentist today in Bury that they would no longer treat my 11-year-old daughter under the NHS and I would now have to pay for her treatment. I've had no choice but to pay for private treatment for myself for some years, which I have grudgingly accepted. But I feel incensed that I have to pay for my child. Every child should be entitled to NHS dental care in their local area. I work for a primary school in a deprived area, and a large percentage of these children have poor dental hygiene, with us having to purchase toothpaste and toothbrushes for them to use at school. The majority of dentists are now not treating children under the NHS, and there will be a large number of parents who will not be in a position to pay for their child's dental care. This generation of children are going to grow up with bad teeth, costing the NHS money when they are older with numerous dental problems. I've rung around 20 surgeries today, not just in Bury, but further afield, and none are taking on children under the NHS. I think that this is disgusting, to be honest. All children should be able to access free dental care. I'm in a fortunate position to be able to pay for my child's private dental care, but many are not. Something needs to be done about this, and fast. And we continue with some more letters. Uh, Julia Wakelam, who is the Green Party councillor for Abbeygate Ward, writes, The site should be used for new homes. It would be hard to think of a more unsuitable use of the former St Louis Middle School site than M&D Development's proposed car park, with reference to the Berry Free Press February the 4th. The last thing Berry needs is to encourage more cars to come into the town centre along our already congested roads. Both West Suffolk Council and Suffolk County Council have declared climate and environmental emergencies and have acknowledged that the urgent need to reduce the pollution of our air by vehicle emissions, which has been described as the greatest single threat to public health. 
What is needed, of course, are alternatives. Park and ride, safe cycle lanes and footpaths and decent public transport. Brownfield sites such as these should be used for housing. A report out this week has shown that new greenfield housing developments on the edge of towns are locking residents into car dependency, making everyday journeys impossible without a vehicle, not to mention continuing to cover our countryside with buildings. There is already planning permission for housing on this site. This planning consent should now be implemented, preferably for social or at the very least affordable houses for which the need continues to rise. And a copy of another open letter to Joe Churchill, this time from Eddie Dougal of Walsh and Blue Willows. And he says, As you will know, the Berry Free Press of February the 4th informed its readers, a number of readers have sent copies of open letters to Joe Churchill regarding Boris Johnson. Here are a few of them. Well, there were seven letters published, all fiercely critical of the Prime Minister. Well, if seven was a few... There seems to have been something of a flood. Perhaps it's time for you to listen to the concerns of your constituents and let them know your position on the Prime Minister's suitability to remain in high office. I would like to ask you, as my MP, to publicly respond to these three questions. 1. Should the Prime Minister publish the full Sue Gray report? 2. If the Metropolitan Police's investigation finds the wrongdoing warrants a fixed penalty notice, should the Prime Minister be fined? And if so, does the public have a right to know? And three, should the Prime Minister remain in his position? And now I have one very small letter, but very significant, from Anne and Michael Turode via email, who say, Wishing you a happy retirement. Congratulations on your retirement, Dr. Tasker, from the Angel Hill Surgery. Many thanks for the wonderful service you gave to us and hope you enjoy your retirement. And the last of our letters for the moment, uh, entitled Metal Trees Could Go on Roundabouts. The discussion regarding the future of the infamous metal trees, as far as I can see, is noticeable by its absence. May I humbly suggest that rather than let them erode away at their secret location, one placed on the middle of the roundabout at either end of Parkway might well solve the problem, and at the same time not stick out like sore thumbs as they would if situated in the historical grid. It would, of course, entail the removal of the statue of St Edmund from its present location in Parkway, to be possibly recited in the Abbey Gardens, which I think would have been a far more appropriate setting in the first place. It's only an idea, but at least it must be worthy of discussion and consideration rather than the present deafening silence about the tree's future. What do other readers think? And that letter was from Brian Davies. And now we have an opinion. The Power of Names, this month's Berries and Edmunds 4BL column, is by Africa Green, and she writes... Back in February 2021, Green King held a public poll with a choice of names to replace the Black Boy pub. They were polarised views on the name change. Some felt the pub had a moral obligation to change it, while others felt there was nothing wrong with the original name. After consultation, the conclusion was they couldn't be certain of its origins. 
Possibilities included that it was a nickname for King Charles II or a reference to black figures placed outside of tobacconist and confectionery shops. But beyond the need to change it for political correctness, I wondered what else does a name change mean? And is it important to remember the original names of places? I spoke to the Reverend Simon Harvey, vicar of the parishes St Mary's and St Peter's in Bury St Edmunds, after I noticed their community centre adjacent to St Peter's Church in Hospital Road is now called the Thomas Clarkson Centre. He said they changed the name in October of last year, but the decision wasn't influenced by Green King. Thomas Clarkson attended church at St Mary's and the parish felt it was appropriate to name the centre after him because of his philanthropy and anti-racism stance. They wanted the centre to be open and welcoming to all. The centre was formerly known as the Hindman Centre, named after a patron who funded the vicars. But not only did the name have no links to Bury, the parish later found that the family name had links to the slave trade in the West Indies, which also prompted the change. I thought it was brave and honest to recognise the history. It shows awareness and a level of empathy for others in the community, and it was refreshing to see that all was well thought out instead of a way to evade backlash or cover up the truth. Sometimes change does occur after extensive lobbying and protest, and name changes can be an example of conflict perspective, a theory coined by German philosopher Karl Marx to describe how society slowly adapts and changes over time through conflicting views and competition from social groups. This in itself is a catalyst for change. In 1994, 42 years after it was formed, Scope became the new name of the Spastic Society after Executive Council member Valerie Lang noted that parents would not seek help because of the derogative meaning spastic held in society. MENCAP also changed its name from the National Association of Parents of Backward Children. The neutrality of the names was a way of trying to prevent them from being turned into a derogative term. A shift from names that label a group of people to more neutral names helps separate a person from their impairment. When big changes like this occur both locally and nationally, where things that were once commonplace are updated and modernised, I often hear the phrase, this is political correctness gone mad. Some feel it's a type of societal censorship, but I think we are now hearing more from marginalised groups and are choosing to listen and are willing to take on board how they perceive things. I believe we are raising the standards of acceptable social interactions with one another. I don't think it has anything to do with the threshold for what is considered politically correct being lowered. I think phrases like snowflake not only paints individuals from marginalised groups as oversensitive, but puts the onus on them to adapt and accept maltreatment. For venues such as community centres and pubs, a name change may invite new faces and diversify the clientele, as well as showing that the establishment and the owners are taking their time to consider potential customers. I think name changes should prompt the question, why? and make us question what it could do for others. And now we have a feature, the tiny village that declared its independence from the UK for a day. In 1983, Battisford decided to break away from the UK for a day as a unique fundraiser. Reporter Ben Robinson looks at the event. 
Etched in the depths of Wikipedia is a line that we, you would not normally expect to see for a small village in Suffolk. In 1983, Battisford declared its independence just for one day from the United Kingdom. How did a small village with a population of 458, according to the 2011 census, create its own money, police force, national anthem and even prevent planes from flying over their land on one Friday in 1983? I can't remember initially why they came up with it, said Jane Pope, a resident of the village, who detailed the day to the Berry Free Press. I think Battersford, which is a small village of 400 people or so, has always done lots of things. It's quite a sociable village, so there have been different things that have happened over the years. I think it was an idea for fundraising and something a bit different. They wanted to do it as a fundraiser and for a bit of fun. Searching for towns and villages who have also declared their independence from the UK comes up with suggestions few and far between. Only a handful have, and Battisford is likely to have been one of the first to do so. In legally binding terms, Battisford could not have seriously have divorced from the state for a day. However, villagers took it as serious as they could, going as far as electing their own king. The Berry Free Press front page from the following week's paper shows former BBC Look East presenter John Mountford, or King John of Battersford, dressed in all his glory alongside residents from the village. And there is a photo of King John being led around the village by donkeys on a cart during the Independence Day. We decided that we would become an independent state for the day. So we had our own money. Our currency was the acorn because Battisford was well known for having a lot of oaks here that were cut down to build the Royal Exchange in London. We had a passport, and we had a national anthem. It revolved around the oak and the acorn. Someone did remind me the other day that we wrote to Wattisham Airfield, and we did actually write to the base asking them not to fly over. They needed permission to fly over our airspace on that day. They wrote back and joined in the fun. Obviously, there was a lot of organisation in terms of liaising with the police and local authorities because we set up roadblocks on the roads into the village. When people came in, they had to stop at the roadblocks, get a passport and come <laughs> in. The villagers cut themselves off for the day and policed their own land with the help of two local and official members of the police. Nick Crane and Ron Wilcox stopped cars at the border before allowing them to pass through. All of it, though, was jovial. It was for a good cause, elevated to new lengths and taken beyond your most recognisable fundraising ideas. As with all fundraisers looking to bring the entire village together, the Festival of Independence centred on a field at the heart of the village, now the site of Fair's House and High View. There were stalls and activities set up throughout the day, while onlookers took their time to watch the new national sport, Golby. It was the first and perhaps only championships of Golby. The sport of Golby, which entailed kicking a ball about and had no particular rules, because there were no discernible rules, it got quite exciting at times. A procession for King John followed, as he was taken around the village on his throne, stationed precariously on a trailer led by donkeys. Since then, Battisford has continued to celebrate the occasion and its anniversary, as well as continued to make a mark on history in their own way. In 1993, Battisford went into Europe 
celebrating the continent by hosting themed stalls in gardens across the village. People who were French dressed up in French gear and sold wine, etc. And then, in 2013, we thought, we've gone independent, we've gone into Europe, so we will have to go global. We did a whole day of similar things, but it was from around the whole world. In the evening, for instance, we had people coming in doing India dancing, so we celebrated Battisford's contribution to the world. We think we are quite a nice place to live. <laughs> then in 2011, the Punch Bowl Inn in Bowl Road became the first pub to be owned by the community in Suffolk. It is a pub, according to Jane, that is well supported and very popular. With the 40th anniversary next year, how are the village planning to celebrate the occasion? We would like to do something next year, because it is an anniversary, but I think it is quite hard at the moment to think ahead with Covid, Jane added. We are hoping and just starting to think about next year and have some kind of celebration in 2023. There's a little picture here appended to the item showing the actual front page of the Battisford passport with a very attractive graphic of an oak tree and an acorn stating independent state of the four parishes. Tribunal ruled for employer over vaccine. In the news this week is the case of Alette versus Scarsdale Grange Nursing Home Limited, where an employment tribunal has ruled that the dismissal of a care home employee for refusing to be vaccinated against COVID-19 was not an unfair dismissal. The home planned a vaccination of all staff and residents, but this was delayed as they were hit by a COVID-19 outbreak, with 33 staff and 22 residents contacting the virus and sadly a number of deaths amongst the residents. The claimant, Alette, was one of the 33 staff to contract COVID-19. The claimant was a care assistant in a nursing home providing residential care to dementia sufferers. In January 2021, the home, made vaccination man the home made vaccination mandatory as a condition of employment prior to the mandatory vaccination scheme coming into force. The claimant was warned of disciplinary action if she refused to take the vaccine, in return stating that she did not trust the vaccine and she had read about government conspiracies online. She also stated that it was against her Rastafarian beliefs to have non-natural medication and she had natural immunity from having already contacted the virus. Following a disciplinary process, the claimant was dismissed by the home for gross misconduct for failure, failing to follow a reasonable management instruction to be vaccinated. The claimant brought an unfair dismissal claim and cited Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights, Right to Respect for Private Life. Despite the Employment Tribunal not doubting the claimant's genuine fear and scepticism about the COVID-19 vaccines, they found in favour of the employer, stating that they acted within the band of reasonable response and that the dismissal was proportionate in the circumstances. It should be noted that this case is a first-instant decision and therefore is not legally binding on another tribunal. However, the facts offer clear guidance that it may be possible to fairly dismiss in certain circumstances where vaccination is required and refused. The chairwoman of the Berry St Edmunds Deaf Association has said the push to pass the British Sign Language Bill in Parliament will bring more of a level playing field to the deaf and hard of hearing community. 
The bill, which is at the committee stage in the House of Commons, wants to make BSL a legally recognised UK language, establishing principles for the use of British Sign Language in public services and will require public bodies to promote the language. Rosemary Butterworth of the Northgate Street site, which holds groups and teaches British Sign Language, said the feeling on the bill among people there is one of excitement. She said the deaf and hard of hearing community has been marginalised for so long. I'm really optimistic that at long last the people who have not had a voice are going to be given a chance to use their own language. Deafness has been ignored as an unseen disability and particularly during Covid, with face coverings, deaf people could not lip-read, putting extra pressure on an already difficult situation. Rosemary also said the bill would give people who rely on BSL their privacy in certain situations too. She said it will mean profoundly deaf people who have grown up being encouraged to use their language, will be able to have interpreters at the likes of the doctors and solicitors, instead of now where they would bring a family member or a friend to interpret. With this and EastEnders actor Rose Ailing Ellis winning Strictly Come Dancing, the association's administrator and group organiser Jane Frost said it had been a lot busier with inquiries about British Sign Language classes and an introduction to BSL course, which started on February the 1st, was fully booked. Asked what Rosemary would say to the politicians looking at the bill, she said, It will make a more of a level playing field for the deaf community, who have been sidelined for too long, as communication is vital for all of us as human beings. I also hope it will go through with some money put into training up qualified tutors and interpreters. For more on the association and the course, and the groups it provides, go to www.berrydeafassociation.co.uk The College signs apprenticeship deals. So West Suffolk College has signed two major deals with local companies to boost apprenticeship roles. Timberwolf Limited and Vertas have both signed deals with the college to increase apprenticeship numbers and have urged other businesses to get involved. Vertas is a national facilities management company, while Timberwolf Limited is a manufacturer of professional wood chippers based in Stowmarket. Both are leading apprenticeship providers. Both organisations currently offer work placements and apprenticeship opportunities but want to boost numbers over the coming year. Timberwolf and Vertas are really strong companies with great values and a desire to be successful. And these are the values we share at West Suffolk College. We are very grateful for their support and delighted to have signed these deals, said Phil Stittle, Executive Director of Business Development at West Suffolk College. Timberwolf Limited has employed five apprentices from West Suffolk College as well as offering work placements, master classes or apprenticeship opportunities for those studying on level two to level six engineering courses. With over seven hundred sorry, with over seventy knowledgeable and highly skilled employees, Timberwolf are proud to be sponsoring West Suffolk College to help bridge the gap between education and employment said Sharon Myhill, the HR Director at Timberwolf. It is now urging other companies to use the college to support with local recruitment needs. 
Luke Alexander, an engineering apprentice at Timberwolf, said, It wasn't until I started my work placement at Timberwolf that I realised the real benefits of doing an apprenticeship. I get to take the things I learn in college and see how they work in a real working environment. For Virtas, the deal with West Suffolk College means it will expand its offer alongside the catering and hospitality programmes to include accounts, business, finance and marketing. In addition to apprenticeships, the partnership will see more work experience opportunities created for students. Virtas is keen to work on charity campaigns with the college, having previously supported environmental schemes and children in need and others. And as we often think these days of shopping local, rather than having all the food miles that we sometimes hear about, here's a little snippet just telling about the farmer's market in Bury St Edmunds. The Farmers Market in Bury St Edmunds has been named by the Daily Telegraph as one of the best farmers markets in the UK. The Bury Market opens on Sundays between 10 and 3 and is held the second Sunday of every month on the Travers. Set up four years ago, the market continues to go from strength to strength, showcasing a selection of local food and drink producers. Shoppers can purchase freshly baked local bread, regional honey and delicious cakes. Craft ales, locally distilled gins and vodkas are also available to purchase alongside a variety of other stalls. There will also be a small number of street food stalls and a handful of handmade craft stalls at the market. Everything sold at the market will be produced by the person who is selling it and all that's being produced locally. Parking in town is free until 1pm on Sunday mornings and dogs are very welcome at the markets. And also, because I don't think Harvey mentioned it, there's some beautiful creamery butter, highly recommended. Making me feel hungry already, so. <laughs> okay, so now, in case you are feeling nice and relaxed and calm and soothed after uh, uh, Harvey and I have yes, been reading. Yes, I was. Yes, very, very, very calm over here. <laughs> I yes. now want you to wake up, and there's a little bit of a quiz coming now to test your knowledge. Harvey, are you listening? Have a go at the weekly quiz. Well, perhaps. From Berry Tour Guides. No prizes, sorry, except <laughs> some creamy butter, but the answer will appear next week. Uh, so this week's question, when was a great fire in Berry that spread from East Great Street to the butter market? Was it A, 1608, B, 1708, C, 1808? I will repeat that. When was the great fire in Bury St Edmunds that spread from Eastgate Street to the Butter Market? Was it A, 1608, B, 1708, or C, 1808? Harvey's looking very interested. Very interesting. A bit before my time, I'm afraid. But we have to wait until next week. Oh, dear. I can't okay. hardly wait. <laughs> anyway, I hope all you listeners are working on that now, racking the old brains. But just in case your brain is hurting a little bit, I have a little item here which might bring a smile to your lips and help you to relax again. Ah. It's headed wind in the willows moment as a mole pops up in shop. A bargain hunting mole was caught in a pound stretcher in Stowmarket after he made a 500-yard road-crossing trek to reach the discount store. The mole spent four minutes browsing around the store before shocked staff found him hiding by the tills. Store manager Judy Brewis, 64, said, I hadn't seen a mole before. 
I've only seen wind in the willows. That's the only mole I've ever seen. She helped place the mole in a basket before taking him back across the road and releasing him in a wooded area around 500 yards away. And you'd be pleased to know we have a little photograph appended to the item showing the mole. What a lovely little story. Isn't Thank it you, just Harvey. Glad to know it had a humane ending. Yes, we hope. So now we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, the Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. And there's one phone number, which is the My Wish phone number, 01284 713 So News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Harvey and Sue, it's good night. Good night and goodbye. <laughs> listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.